the first question. Name, clue, read and write. Oh, the wrong side. During meditation, you guide us to ask our body and our mind if they want to meditate. I am fascinated you consider them separate entities to yourself. And when I ask them these questions, I find myself talking to myself with no one responding. (laughs) How do we realise that they can be separate? It's just a useful perception. That's all it is. It's like how to be mindful of your mind. How to be unmindful of your body? How do you feel right now in your body? You have to ask your body, don't you? You become aware of the state of your body. And the mind is something much different. What actually is the mind? Now usually at this point I do a little uh, trick question. But I want you to comply, it's not embarrassing. Please put up your right hand if you are happy more happy than sad, put up your left hand if you're sad. Great, keep it up, don't put it down yet. Now please point to the happiness for me. (laughs) Are you imagining it? It's real, isn't it? You know what happiness is? Where is happiness located in your body? It's in your heart. No. The point is that happiness is not located in your body. Happiness lives in the thing we call the mind. Fear, anxiety, those sorts of things. Where is it located? Are they imaginations? That's real. So excitement, that's real. Where actually do you feel it? It's not in the body, it's an emotional quality. It lives in the mind. What is a garden? A garden is a place with trees and bushes and flowers and garden paths and stuff. That's how we know it's a garden, by what is in there. We know what the mind is by what's located in it. So that thing which you can call your mind, you ask it. The mind is not the brain. The brain is something completely different. That's why of all these amazing sort of science. One of those amazing sciences, a long time ago now I came across this, Professor John Lauber of Sheffield University. It was in the 80s or 90s. He was doing research on the shape of human skulls. If there was any abnormal shaped in our head, whether that affects your intelligence, you know, your social cohesion or whatever. And so he was at a big university and he was always on the lookout for students whose head was misshaped, like too long or too short. Or t- for many of us, we wouldn't really notice it, but he was the expert. So he found this one student whose head was you know, a bit weird. And he was a graduate, stu- graduate student in mathematics. He's doing a PhD in mathematics. He had a girlfriend, 
He was basically just an ordinary guy, except, you know, quite clever, except that his head was slightly misshaped. So he came on the research program, and when uh, Professor Lorber took a, a CT scan of his brain, he was shocked. He did it a couple of times. He had no brain. He wrote this article, The Boy with No Brain. He had 1% of what you expect of a normal cerebral cortex. Other than that, nothing there, just uh, cerebral fluid. Nothing else. He became known as a boy with no brain. I was fascinated about that because there's no way he should be even alive, survived so many years. There's no way he should be smart enough to get a, uh, a bachelor's degree in mathematics. There's no way he could look so normal as he did, but he had no brain. And just to make sure I was not misinterpreting this, I discussed this once with you know, one of the doctors over in, um, I think, St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. And he said, yes, he's seen those CT scans of his brain. It's true, the guy's got no brain. And he said, he's such an amazing young man. And I said, well, what's happening about that? Aren't people doing more research on this? And he said, no. They filed it in the anomaly cabinet. He said, it's just too difficult for people to understand what's going on. But he said, it's real. And it's such a mistake that there's a real case of a boy with no brain. And they're trying to find out how come he can look so normal and act so normal. And the answer, of course, is the brain and the mind are two different things. There's these other cases which I love talking about, which is the terminal lucidity. I've seen cases of this, heard cases of it, uh, but it's only when I gave a, a seminar or a conference over in Renshi Hospital in Singapore. And then I asked, you know, just like I asked you about your, how you're happy, are you sad, where does that happiness live? I asked the nurses and doctors and carers in the palliative care unit. I said, how many of you have experienced like a patient who's been in a coma, been brain damaged, who's basically his brain is not functioning anymore, just open their eyes at the end of their life, being able to recognize everybody, see them, talk to them, when that should not be able to happen. The first time I came across that was this story from a, a, a New York hospital. A guy had a brain tumor, and the brain tumor was just taking over you know, his workable brain. And it was such a constant process, the doctors there could actually predict the day he was going to die. And so all the family were there at the end. And this fellow was basing in a coma, he had no brain left. Only the part of the brain left was able to keep his blood pumping and his uh, 
is uh, uh, lungs taking in air. The rest he wasn't able to speak or respond you know, for many, many hours beforehand. So all the, all the relations were next to him and then he opened his eyes and said, oh, true, you're here. Eileen, you're here. He could recognize all of his relations and had a conversation with them for 45 minutes. And the doctor was there and said, this can't be happening. But it was. For 45 minutes, he was functioning like a normal human being. And then he died. Lucidity at the last time of your life. And it happens that people who have dementia, or Alzheimer's, whichever you call it, uh, at the end of your life, you haven't been able to recognize anybody for months. And then the last part of your life, it becomes clear. You have lucidity and you recognize, ah, oh, Alan, nice to see you. How, how are you? All that cognition and memory comes back. Why? It's the same reason. Terminal lucidity is actually uh, a word which is now accepted as why at the end of people's life that there is, the brain is not workable anymore, but something's working. You always say that's the mind. And that's also the same on this same kind of topic. Not just terminal lucidity, but even like what you might call natal lucidity when you're born. This first came up when this, no, they were um, basically a young Aussie couple with the, uh, had two children, two, two boys, Peter and Paul, I call them. And the youngest of the children had just come back from hospitals you know, she had just recently given birth, now they could go home, the mother and child. And so they were at home one evening, and that they told their youngest, uh, their eldest son, uh, Peter, go and say goodnight to your brother Paul. And just quite, uh, quite obediently, the younger kid went over to the pram, or the, whatever you call it, where uh, his young brother Paul, only just born, said, Good night, Paul. And then Paul said, Good night, Peter. He was only a few days old. Nothing, no, yeah, a few days. Which is impossible. They haven't been to kindy yet, let alone school, and they could speak so clearly. And apparently, when the parents told me this, the parents then, they were already shocked. Without asking their eldest son, Peter, he said it again to his young baby brother. Good night, Paul. And this time with both of them paying full attention, they were in shock. The little baby said again, Good night, Peter. Clear. That's not supposed to be possible. There's this other case I remember reading about where this uh, boy just born, almost fresh out of the womb, 
he took seven steps and said, this is my last life. <laughs> I, like many of you, you read that sort of stuff, you think that's impossible, that's just, in a hagiography, you build up these stories. But hearing that other story, and many others since, about little children, they're not supposed to be able to speak yet, can speak. An interesting thing I remember from this couple, they said the young baby did not talk in like a, a toddler's voice, talked in an adult voice. You know, the intonations of someone who's much older than just a few days. And that sort of shocked them so much. And I was happy they weren't Buddhists. But they said, we thought you might understand because they knew the Buddhists believed in rebirth more than anybody else, which was true. And another couple who go to Nonamara Center, they were Malaysian Buddhists. They had the same experience. Their kid taught when it wasn't supposed to be able to, just born. And they didn't want to tell anybody because they thought no one would believe them. So anyway, that's the mind. So that's why when you realize that's a real thing, it's an entity, it's a process, but it exists, then it's not a hard thing to ask it. It's like the mind now is asking the mind in the next moment, can you please tell me how you are, what you need? It's just a nice way of introducing what mindfulness is. You're aware and you can find out what's going on. And you trust that more than anything else. Same you ask your body. I ask my body at the beginning of meditation, am I comfortable? But you need to be adjusted. And if I ask the question, my mindfulness goes there, I can feel that it did need to be adjusted, so I adjust it. Anyway, the body and the mind are very separate. That's what actually we do in meditation. The five senses and the body vanish in meditation. And that's really cool. Because of the five senses and the body vanish in meditation, you get all these amazing uh, experiences and effects. To give you one example of that, I usually, for many years, haven't talked about this guy's name, but it's so many years ago now, maybe about 30 years ago now, so I don't mind mentioning his name. His name is Greg. I won't say his surname. But Greg came up and told me that he had an experience on the weekend. He was meditating at home. You know, he was watching the TV with his wife on a Sunday afternoon. And it was a boring program. He says, I'm just going to go into the bedroom to meditate. He'd only meditate for 40 minutes, he told me. That's usually his max. But after about an hour and a half, he hadn't come out of the bedroom. So what does the wife do? Goes and checks on him. And he saw him in their bedroom, sitting, perfect posture, perfectly still. Too still. Couldn't, uh, couldn't detect any breath. To all extents and purposes, he looked like he was dead. So what did she do? 
over here in Australia, you ring 000, the ambulance, emergency services. What do you ring in Singapore? 999. <laughs> so she was panicky. She thought her husband was dead. She rang the, the ambulance. Fortunately, she didn't live too far away from the hospital. Ambulance came really quickly. Do, 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 do. Now with the, uh, with the what's it called, the, the siren. And then the medics, they rushed into the bedroom. He wasn't breathing. They checked his pulse. There was no pulse. So they put him straight into the back of the ambulance and rushed him to the hospital. His wife was with him. To all extents and purposes, he looked like he was dead, but let's just check. The triage nurse put him, all his machines on him. The, uh, what was it called? The ECG and the EEG. ECG was flat. EEG was also flat. He was dead. Except... His good fortune was that the doctor on duty that afternoon was an Indian, Indian doctor. That was his good fortune. It wasn't an Indian doctor on duty that had probably sent him to the morgue straight away. And when he later came out of his meditation, the mortuary attendants would probably have died of shock. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, according to his wife, she said they put defibrillators on him, you know, the electric shocks, to try and get his heart going again. Apparently they don't do that anymore. They put, I think, uh, with adrenaline or something, inject you. But anyway, they tried the electric shocks many times. Every time it didn't work. The defibrillators uh, didn't work at all. ECG was still uh, uh, flat. And the other thing, which was interesting, they told me, they didn't know that this was like Buddhist teachings. The other thing they, they told me was the doctor noticed something strange. When he wasn't breathing and his uh, brain wasn't working, it was a flat line, his body was still warm. That was like anomaly. That's what it says in the Mahavedala Sutta. The difference between somebody dead or someone being in a jhana is you're dead, your body goes cold. You're in these deep meditations, your body is warm. So please, if Venerable Chanda is sitting there and she's not moving, <laughs> don't send her to the, <laughs> to the mortuary yet. Just just make sure if she's still warm, she's still alive, leave her there, having a nice meditation. Still warm. So eventually they kept on doing the defibrillators because there was nothing, it was a Sunday afternoon, so there's not much business in the hospital. And eventually he just came out of his meditation. And the, the screen showed that the heart and the, and the brain started to work again. And he didn't know anything which was going on at the time, he was just blissing out. And the interesting thing, I like quoting that story with his permission. Number one, that he didn't hear the ambulance, 
He didn't hear the sirens, didn't hear his, his, the people talking about him, or they're just right next to him. Couldn't even feel the electric shocks on his body. His body had vanished. Five senses had totally stopped for a while. He wasn't unaware. He wasn't like anesthetized. He was perfectly aware, but only in his sixth sense of the mind. And it didn't harm him at all. And I did specifically ask him, was there anything unpleasant about that experience at all? He said, to be honest, yes. The only unpleasantness it was the doctor allowed them, because they came in an ambulance and gave him a full check over, he couldn't find anything wrong with him. So he walked back home with his wife. And the only unpleasantness was the scolding he got from his wife. <laughs> Don't you ever do that again. <laughs> I thought you were dead. It wasn't. So that's what happens. And the body and the mind are two different things. So sometimes you know, the body can be just so uh, still it disappears, it turns off, but the mind is still very alert inside. I love stories like that. I don't make them up, I just report them with the person who experiences that uh, permission. That's exactly what it says in the suttas as well. There was this monk in the jungle, in the forest. He was sitting meditation. And while he was sitting meditation, two villagers looking for mushrooms or something came past and they saw him sitting so still, they thought he had died. And being quite good Buddhists, they thought, it's really bad karma just to let this monk get eaten up by the jungle animals. We should cremate him. There's wood in the forest anyway. It took him about half an hour to make a funeral pyre, put the monk on top, did some chanting, whatever chanting they knew. And chanting wasn't that good because they're just villagers, but it's good enough. And they lit the fire, and they'd already spent so much time. Once the fire was lit, they walked off. And the next day, they were very surprised and impressed that that monk, same monk, walked into their village on arms round. <laughs> Not even his robe was burnt. That's in the suttas. These things actually happen. Rarely, but you know, in where I sort of circulate, you get all these stories and sometimes you, you check them out. You know the people involved and they're true. Anyway, do you get inspired by stories like that or does it challenge you too much? Because I, I remember some years ago, people said, don't talk too much about that. It might scare people. You don't need to be scared, you're totally safe. An amazing experience about you know, who you are and what life is. Anyway, why is anger so easily arise and not kindness? The reason is, I think, because anger, you get, you get more of a boost of energy from anger at first, 
But then that boost of energy from anger, you have to pay back afterwards. You get very tired and even depressed. Kindness is harder to create. But when you do create it, it's much, much more... um, uh, lasts much longer. So anger arises easily and... When you have anger, you also feel that you have like a purpose in life, that you exist. That's one of the reasons why I know that you see some people give talks with lots of anger. They're down with this group, down with that group. You know, and sometimes even religious leaders do that. I can't do that. It makes the talks much more exciting. People feel much more alive when someone is shouting all this anger and venom. But kindness is more powerful in the long run. Anger is easy, but it really hurts afterwards. That's bad effects. Kindness is much more beautiful. It takes more time to to develop. How can one show kindness in a barrage of being scolded? If someone's scolding you and you give them kindness back, that really upsets them. If you want to get your own back, give them kindness instead of anger. But also, the other way, it's one of the stories I read when I was young, uh, in these ancient schools, this was in Greece, in one of the big cities in Greece, you know, 2,000 years ago. There, you went to one teacher, and that one teacher would teach you everything. You know, language, maths, and goodness knows what else. And so this one student had graduated by one of these well-known teachers, in, say, in Athens. And when he got a job... Often his boss would scold him, would tell him off. And this, uh, his new worker, the, the student formerly, would only laugh when he was scolded. <laughs> when his boss was telling him off. That really frustrated the boss. You try that when your boss scolds you and you laugh. And then what happened? He was a good worker. He couldn't really just be sacked. Then the boss said, look, how come? You're so weird. When I scold people, get angry at them, they usually get embarrassed. But you just laugh. Why? And then this new worker, just not so long ago a student, said, when my teacher scolded me for making mistakes... I had to pay the teacher an extra salary. Because it's much harder work scolding you, said the teacher, so I I deserve to be paid more. And now, he said, with you, my boss, I get all the scolding for free. (coughs) That's why I laugh. Thank you. (laughs) It's just looking at the scolding in a different way. Seeing something positive in it. So you can. Show kindness to barrage of being scolded.
It makes you invulnerable to scolding. Why do people scold you? To make you uncomfortable. If you refuse to get uncomfortable, they can't scold you anymore. They give up. That's what I found. There's so many examples of that. There was this monk when I was uh, uh, just a new monk over in Thailand. And this monk always had a bad, uh, a bad attitude. And one day I was just wiping my bowl with the same rag which I was wiped the spittoon with. And he came up to me and said, Brahma Wangso, that's a bad habit. Was that convincing? It was. Oh, thank you. I've been trying that for a long time. Usually people, I can't do it. <laughs> and of course, all the other monks there were just shocked. You, could, you didn't need to read their mind. They were thinking, how is he going to respond to this, me? So what I said, first of all, what I thought, I've been doing this for weeks. Every monk does the same. What's wrong? That's how I thought, but I realized that response is not going to work. So instead, I didn't say anything. I just walked to the rag box, picked up another rag, and went back and started wiping my bowl with the rag he wanted me to wipe it with. Without saying anything to him, I just looked at him. And his face went bright red. He was so embarrassed. And he never got angry at me again. He couldn't. I didn't respond in a normal way. If you do things different, what he expected was me to say, what do you mean? I'm doing the same as everybody else. And then you have an argument, he could scold me some more. But when you stop any further scolding, I just, it doesn't take me any time just to pick up another rag. So that's what I did. I was like, thought I was really good there. I didn't always react like that, but I only tell you the nice stories. <laughs> the stories where I'm a failure and stupid, I never repeat those. In near-death experience, people commonly report experiencing a life review. Other deceased loved ones in encountering a uh, being that loves them unconditionally. How do you make sense of these reports? I'm unsure how they tie in with Buddhist rebirth. Ajahn, please enlighten, thank you. Yeah, near-death experiences are really cool. Did I tell you that story about Venerable Nibuto's um, village? And, oh no, that's right, I think this was over just uh, in the hall over in um, Bodhinyana recently. He comes from India, from the Punjab. And he said, in the Punjab, in these traditional villages, all the women are called Kaur, and all the men are called Singh, Mr. Singh and Mrs. Kaur. I don't know why that's the case. But then one of the elder Mrs. Kaur's died one morning. And the doctors, you know, really good medical care, doctors looked at her and said, no, she was dead. So they had to, according to tradition, 
to do the cremation that evening. So they gathered all the wood, you know, made all the preparations, got some of the relations from nearby villages. And just before the, the cremation was about to start, she came too. She started speaking. She recovered. Which was, you know, quite amazing. But then, then they asked her, what happened? And she said that once she died, first of all, she left her body, these two spirits took her to this you know, big hall and there this, this big, like, senior spirit looked at her and looked at the two small spirits and started scolding the small spirits. You've got the wrong Mrs. Core. Simple mistake to make when people have the same surname in the village. <laughs> so they had to take her back. She said, they took me back and now I'm awake again. That's what happened. And of course, about half an hour later, another Mrs. Core died in the village. This time they got the correct one. So when I tell that story, I mention in Bodhinyana Monastery there's an Ajahn Brahmali and an Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> if one of us die, don't commit us yet, they may have got the wrong one, a simple mistake to make. Anyway, the life review. The job of these so-called heavenly beings in the suttas, like Yama, he's supposed to um, encourage you to remember your life. Bring up all of the things which you did, not to hide anything, to be honest. And I always thought when I first read that, then Yama sends you to this realm or that realm, and that's not true. I just was misreading the Pali. What's actually true is, you know, those heavenly beings bring up, you know, your actions of body, speech and mind during your life, then it's up to you to decide where you need to go. No one sends you to a hell realm or an animal realm, it's up to you to decide whether you want to go there or not. You make that choice. That's why, because it was always something which I couldn't understand. Yama is one of the high gods in Buddhism. You know, the heavenly beings have done lots of good karma. And I thought, if I got reborn as Yama, I would never send anybody to a hell realm. That's just an awful thing to do. So because of things like that, you know, you realize it is true. The, the heavenly beings, once you die, they just remind you of you know, your actions, of body, speech, of mind, good karma, bad karma, whatever. And then it's up to you to decide what you need to do next. Which was one of the reasons why, if you are like a stream winner in Buddhism, one thing you know very well is how to forgive yourself. All the actions which human beings do, sometimes you're in a difficult place, you don't make a good decision, and you overreact and you do some terrible even crimes. You know, Many, I told many people about uh, that uh, young man who did the cooking for a treat many years ago, Carl. 
just to make a really strong point. You know, our regular cook for the retreat uh, was diagnosed with cancer, or rather, the partner of the cook was diagnosed with cancer, so she apologetically said, look, I can't do the cooking for you this time. I've got to look after my partner, my husband. So I was in a difficult position, trying to find a cook. So I found Carl. And he volunteered to do this cooking for free. And he was an amazing cook, one of the best we've ever had here, all for free. And at the end of the retreat, like what we will do here, we'll thank all of the people who came and, and uh, worked on this retreat and made it possible for you. We have gratitude. And then they said, but where's Carl? Can't we invite him in or somewhere to say just how much we appreciated all the cooking he's done for us and what a great cook he was and what a kind person he was. He was always really pleasant to everybody. He made special food for some of you. And I said, uh, we can't invite him today because he's back in Carnot Prison Farm. He was on work release. I said, oh, he's such a great guy. What did he do to go into Carnot Prison Farm? And then I told everybody, rape. When I said that, just like you, you go quiet. Ajahn Brahm, you allowed, well they said, a rapist to come and be with us for these nine days and feed us? Yes. I trusted him, known him for a while. I trusted him. And I gave him that uh, opportunity to serve. And how much he appreciated that. And how much I was telling each one of the people on retreat, why do we judge people and feel afraid because of that judgment? There was nothing for anybody to feel afraid about. He did those rapes as more than one when he was on drugs. A young man, stupid, drugged to his eyeballs and not acting in a responsible manner at all. He'd given up those drugs a long time ago. You get long prison sentences for rape. I said, now he's a very wonderful man. He's married now, lives a nice successful life. That was his youth. And not just to tell people about forgiveness, but actually seeing it. There was a guy, if I'd have told the people on that retreat that the cook was going to be a rapist from Carnot Prison Farm, how many of you would have joined up? You'd have serious doubts. When I introduced the person, first of all, I trusted him, I knew that he would not do any harm. He'd actually do the opposite. Just teach you a marvelous lesson. You cannot judge a person for one or two stupid bad things they did when they were young. They become a much better person. And he is now. And the people on retreat helped him. And he helped other people understand what forgiveness is. And trust. Do you think I did the right thing?
Thank you. So, this is where we can forgive and literally move on. You heal, you know, your mistakes. You have to pay something for them later on in life by looking after others. But anyway, that this is you do a life review. You can forgive yourself and learn. You see other deceased loved ones and encountering a being that loves you unconditionally. Sometimes those uh, big spirits, if you encounter a being that loves you unconditionally, this is weird, but this is when a person dies. How many times have you heard you see a light and you go towards the light when you die? You've heard that before many times? That light is exactly the same as a nimitta, which many of you will see when you meditate. The body starts to fade away and disappear in meditation. And a lot of times people see this beautiful light. And if you are confident enough to not disturb this process in meditation and go into that light, you experience that into that light as this great bliss which so many people in using their perception, they interpret as unconditional love. They experience it as a sublime, superior, ultimate being. What it is, is the experience of what in meditation is called first jhana. That's you know, how blissed out you get in jhanas. And people who haven't been um, instructed interpret that as union with God. And one of the uh, examples of that is in the Christian Bible, in Psalms, I forget which Psalm it is, we got the phrase, be still and know that thou art God. When I first read that, I thought, that's weird, that doesn't sound like modern Christianity at all. But that's what it says in there. What the heck does it mean? Somehow or other, the spirituality in all countries melded together and now got in there. If you really are still, samadhi, stillness, it's not you experience God like you are God. You're like your union with God. You enter that nimitta. And if you're a Christian, that's how you interpret it. That's the names you give it. It's not God, it's you to know that you are God. You're not, I'm not saying that you're divine, this is how the experience feels at the time. You're blissed out. And you are not there. Your sense of self has gone. Temporarily. And it's just an incredible bliss, which is so easy to interpret as just unconditional love. So this is actually how they tie in to the process of letting your body disappear. And of course that's what happens in death, that's also what happens you know, in meditation. So a lot of times when you really get into this meditation, you're actually experiencing learning about how to die. So when death happens, you know exactly what to do. Which is basically nothing, relax, let go. It's a great opportunity of seeing that light, merging into it, coming out and getting all these amazing insights. It's one of the reasons why 
if you don't have any enlightenment experiences, you know, when you're alive, you have enormous opportunity in the time of your death. Many people make those breakthroughs, become stream winners or whatever, at the time of their death. Body vanishes, the mind is still there. And if it can see that light and you can be courageous enough to merge into it, no need to be afraid, you bliss out. And that will empower your mind so much, it could actually understand all the Dharma you've heard. Anyway, those near-death experiences is exactly what happens. Don't need to be afraid. It's actually something to look forward to. Do you agree? Okay. Opening the door to your heart has good stories of when you visited the prison. Do monks still visit the prison? Or do, do they bring back more stories? Oh, yes. During the COVID crisis, we couldn't visit the prisons. But now, what day is today? So, on Friday, one of the monks will be visiting Carnet. You get some amazing stories there. One of the stories, you all know the two bad brick story, don't you? It's only two bad bricks. You don't need to destroy a wall for two bad bricks, which I laid. There's one of the prisoners up at Carnot. I think he's still there. He's in there for murder. He read that book. It was a revelation for him. He goes around saying, it was only two murders. (laughs) I don't need to destroy myself. You learn from that. And honestly, one of the nice things about prisons, which surprised me but motivates me to, to say these things, all the time I've been in prison, just visiting, I've never seen a rapist, I've never seen a murderer, I've never seen a thief. What I've ever seen is a person who's done those things. That doesn't make them a murderer. A person is murdered. What's going to happen to them? One day they'll be released. But I got this amazing telephone call. I think it was the best praise I've ever got in my whole life. That's how important this was. From a prison officer. The prison officer called me and said, this is Ajahn Brahm, yeah, it's me. And he said, look, I'm about to retire. I've been in the prison service all my life and I want you to come back to teach. And I said, look, I'm really busy these days looking after a couple of monasteries, nuns monasteries, and uh, Buddhist Fellowship, Bodhinyana, Singapore, Brahm Center. Look, <laughs> I get involved in too much. I send another monk. He said, no, I want you. And the way he said it, I couldn't help but ask, why me? And that's when he gave me this amazing praise, which to me meant so much. I'll never forget it. He said, because every prisoner, I've been in this prison service all my life, every prisoner who came to one of your classes, when they're released, never comes back. 100% or zero recidivism rate. So I don't know what you're doing, but please come back and do it again. And when he said that praise, that people who came to my class when they were 
end of their sentence, never came back to jail again. I thought, what have I done? And it's like saying things like that. Yeah, you murdered two people, that's a terrible thing to do. But it doesn't make you a murderer, you don't have to do it again. Learn, forgive, become a better person. Pay back your debts in other ways, you don't have to go back to jail again. Become these amazing people in this world. It's a different way of looking at things, and he said, please come back. So that's one of the, a couple of those stories about jail and prison service. Oh, I may not finish this tonight, doesn't matter. One of the other stories which I really sort of are happy about is one of the first times you know, I went over into the prison service, a uh, prison uh, to serve. And people actually said to look, Ajahn Brahm, you give all these teachings which are lovely, but that's you now in a monastery. A monastery is not in the real world. And a real world is much easier than being in prison. We have very few rights here. And it's a tough place. You've got to be tough to survive. All your loving kindness rubbish can't work. And when the nice thing about the prisoners, they were honest, believe it or not. They weren't polite like you are. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's not an invitation to be impolite, but nevertheless, I kind of find that cute when people actually said exactly how they felt. And so, challenge. You say, yeah? He said, yeah. So look, challenge you. Who's the person in this prison you hate the most? And straight away this guy said he was one of the senior officers. In the prison slang, he was really a dog. There's a few words before that, but just, just dog. <laughs> Why? And he said, look, this happened last weekend. You know, Kana is pretty remote. Bonyana Monastery is remote, but there's no public transport here. And one Sunday, in visiting hours, one of the prisoner's wife managed to get a lift to see her husband. <coughs> Such a rare chance to actually to pay a visit to her husband. And this prison officer saw her and decided to ask this prisoner, she hadn't checked in yet, to ask this prisoner, her husband, to go and do an errand on the other side of the prison. It's a large area, that prison farm, and a place where the PA system couldn't reach. So he sent this prisoner to the other side of the prison, and when his wife checked in, you know, the command came, would prisoner so-and-so please report to the visitor centre? You know, you have a visitor. He couldn't hear that. This prison officer never said where this guy was. And they started looking for him. The other prison officers were really good people, kind people. They started looking for this prisoner and eventually they found him. By the time they found him and he came back to the visitor's centre, I'm terribly sorry, the visiting hours are over. Just did that, just out of spite. 
a nasty thing to do. It may not feel much to you, like just cancelling a visit, but it's so hard to get to Carnet Prison Farm. And it's just a needless thing to do. Just did that out of ill will. He's a nasty person. So it's a great. Now we have a good competition. Because one of the prisoners, his job was actually to serve tea and coffee in the afternoon to this officer. And he was working in the administration department. And I said, great. Now, I want you... His name was Nick, this prisoner. I want you, every time you make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee for this prison officer, make, find out how he likes his coffee or, or tea or whatever. How strong... You know, how sweet, you know, just find out what his preferences are and if there's any biscuits or sandwiches which he likes or cakes. And then every time that you serve him this tea or cake or something, say, here you are, sir, I hope you enjoy it. Show him kindness. And he say, I can't do that. <laughs> Come on, do it. This is the competition, the challenge. And I would go there every week. How's it going, Nick? Hopeless, as I told you. He doesn't even acknowledge that I exist. I put the tea and the cake on there. Is that okay, sir? It's like I just aren't there. He ignores me 100%. And it took three months to get the breakthrough. Again, I'm only telling this story because it worked. <laughs> and the breakthrough. Nick, when I went there for the, the class... He was really excited. He couldn't wait to tell me. What happened? What happened? Well, I, I found out he really likes this type of biscuit and I gave it to him with his tea. I said, I hope you'll like the biscuit, sir. And the prison officer said, ugh. <laughs> that grunt was the first acknowledgement that this prisoner existed. And I said, okay, the crack is in the damn wall. It's only a short matter of time. It's going to totally come down that damn wall. And it did. He got him some coffee and a sandwich, which he knew the prison officer really liked, and gave it to him. Here you are, sir. I hope you enjoy. And the prison officer turned around, looked at the prisoner and said, thank you. And apparently, all the other prisoners confirmed this. That thank you went around the prison grapevine, not just in Carnet, but all the other prisons here in Australia. Because, you know, prisons go from one prison to another. They get to know everybody. And they couldn't believe it. That this prison officer could actually say thank you to a prisoner. Loving kindness worked. And that prisoner, Nick, I did see him once. I was waiting for another monk at Perth Airport. Someone put a hand on my shoulder... It was Nick. And the first thing he said, Bob, I'm still meditating every day, he said. <laughs> it was really sweet. So that's what happens. You go into there and uh, you get some amazing stories. People get their life together, which is beautiful to see. You know, we all make mistakes. It's nice when the mistakes you make, you can heal them. Dear Archer, when opening the door of my heart, who is opening the door of its heart? I am. I am opening the door of your heart. I conditioned you, brainwashed you. 
It's like only putting $100 notes in the donation box. <laughs> you don't do it, I do it. I've conditioned you. <laughs> Sing the British National Anthem. The hypnotist, he did that. There's a lot to be said for that. A lot of times, I remember, I don't know if any of you, I'm idling you probably there, one of the first times I gave a big talk in the ex what's it called, Exco, yeah, the big convention centre. Expo. Expo, okay, yeah. Anyway, when I was walking in to the, the talk, there was about 5,000 people there. Suntec City. Yeah, Suntec City one, yeah. And I was the only person giving a talk there. There was no uh, B group supporting me. There was no uh, person... Yeah, SARS, that's the one, yeah. And all these people had come there to listen to me. And, you know, they'd given up their evening. They probably rushed a, a dinner just so they could hear this talk. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm just a simple monk. You know, 5,000 people watching you. What if I give a bad talk? That would be terrible. I'd be just... Uh, all those funds which the Buddha's fellowship had just given to actually to make this happen. It's an expensive place to hire. And then I thought, I got nervous for about a couple of seconds. And I realised, I am not giving the talk tonight. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, is giving the talk. Because all the wisdom, all of the meditation I've learnt, all of the insights, he brainwashed those into me. In the same way I brainwash you. Even some of the words I say, they came from Ajahn Chah, my main teacher. And so I got up there and I said to myself, I never told anybody else, I'm not giving the talk tonight. Ajahn Chah is. And I could get up there and give a nice talk, relaxed, peaceful because I realised that talk, all that wisdom had brainwashed into me by my teacher. I had to let him do that. It's very helpful, it's not personal. So I didn't worry about being popular or not popular. So anyway, how can the teaching of non-self fit into this? It's like I give a talk. I don't really give a talk. And Honestly, I'm being really honest with you now, when I start giving talks, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I just relax and let go and see what happens. And sometimes I'm sitting here in Bodhinyana or in some place over in Singapore and I start talking and sometimes I inspire myself. Wow, where did that come from? That's really cool. <laughs> That's how it feels. And then later on, I say, where did that come from? And I look back and find there was some teacher somewhere who taught me that. And I say, thank you. I don't take any responsibility for it. Just the same way even now, because Aya Chandra has listened to me for so many years and takes me as her teacher, some of the things which she says, you know, that what you said the other day about being sick, I've been saying that same sentence for years. I brainwashed that into you. <laughs> so it's nice, you can really relax and give a talk, take no responsibility for it.
much easier. So anyway, that's how I teach. It is, okay, how does the teaching of non-self fit into this beautifully? Is it Sankara opening the door of its heart to other candors? It's a lot of time, it's your, your will. That is conditioned into you from TV, from all the people you associate with, your friends, the places you go to visit, your schooling, your school teachers. I still remember many of the teachers which taught me so much stuff when I was in school. And I imitate them. I can't help it. It's brainwashed into me. Even why I tell bad jokes. One of my relations, he had a motorbike accident. This was in the time of my father. He had a motorbike accident, rushed to hospital. This was many years ago in England. And uh, because of emergency status, they were rushing, had to amputate one of his legs. And after the amputation, they found out it was the wrong leg. That happens. Apparently, they say these days, they're actually right on the leg, this one. So there can be no mistake. But they amputated the wrong leg. They took him back into surgery, had to amputate the other leg because it was unusable. He lost both his legs. As soon as he could, as soon as he recovered, he hired a lawyer and sued the hospital. He lost. He didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) (laughs) Now that was told to me when I was about 10 years of age by my father. (laughs) So that explains why I tell bad jokes. (laughs) It was conditioned into me. So I remember giving a talk about this years ago and Ajahn Sujata wrote the title Why Ajahn Brahm Tells Bad Jokes. <laughs> it's all explained, it's conditioned. The intention to open the door of my heart feels a little bit of self-orientated. Please explain. Again, you don't do it. You just can't resist. And then you find out why. Why did I open it? Why did I forgive? Why was I kind? Maybe because something you read from the Buddha or something you've seen from somewhere else encourages you to be kind. You do it. You think it's you doing it. No, it's not. If will is conditioned non-self, why are we still subject to karma? Because you think that will belongs to you. If that's what you assume, that you decided to do things, then you are subject to the law of karma. Very much so. But if you see through this, and I really see through it, not just believe it, you become a once ret- a non ret- sorry, you become a, a, a stream enterer. And the stream winter stream enterer is no longer subject to the type of karma which will make you be reborn in one of the lower realms. It's one of those things I was fascinated by. Why is it a stream winner no longer able to be reborn in the lower realm once they die? That's the answer. You are free. Because you understand the will is just conditioned. It's non-self. 
and you no longer need to be subject to that part of karma which sends you into the, the bad realms. My goodness, it's not a question, but a essay. Dear Ajahn, okay, thank you so much for your compassion and teaching. So happy to be here. People commonly associate the concept of no free will, conditioned will. I knew I'd get some questions on this. As an argument for no personal responsibility. <laughs> it's a nice question. Which they find abhorrent. So a serial killer is not guilty by virtue of no free will. What if you are a soldier at war and someone tells you, your senior officer tells you to go into battle and kill? Does that absolve you from the bad karma? One of the stories which you know, quite inspired me, many of you, or maybe around my age, will remember the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. There was Lieutenant Kelly, I still remember the name of the commanding officer of this troop of soldiers, who were ordered to go into this village of My Lai and to kill every man, woman and child. They were also all told that these were Viet Cong, the enemy, very dangerous, kill everybody. And this, that's what they did, but they had one journalist found out about it, it became a scandal. And Lieutenant Kelly was sent to military jail until he was pardoned by the president, I forget which president at the time. But anyhow, this enterprising psychologist wanted to find out what happened to those soldiers who followed their orders, I think 25 years later. So I did a bit of digging, found all of those soldiers who followed the orders were nearly all just uh, socially scarred. Drug addicts, alcoholics, weren't able to have hold down a job, weren't able to have a relationship. But there's always one or two exceptions. And it's the exceptions that I tell you that you don't have to follow orders. One of those was this African-American soldier. And when they interviewed him, apparently he joined the US military to get out of the slums to get alive, to get some training, get some self-respect. He wasn't uh, well-schooled. He didn't come from a good family. He was just you know, one of these young, poor people who joined the army for a life. He refused the order. He said, I can't do this. Just go in and shoot every man, woman and child. And even though he knew that was breaking the military law, and he would go to a military jail for a few years. And the military jails in the United States are much worse than even the civilian jails. But he was willing to take that because the alternative of killing people, even men, women and children, was just too abhorrent for him. He wasn't like a strong Christian, he didn't have a religion. He was just a naturally good person. And having enjoyed those years in the jail, when he came out, he was the only one of those ex-soldiers 
who had self-respect and was happy. That taught me so much about what you really believe in your heart, what you know is right, you have to do. It's not being brave, it's you can't avoid doing that. So please, Venerable Chanda, don't praise me for ordaining bhikkhunis. I had no choice. <laughs> it's just what is right, and you've got to follow that. Like that African-American soldier did, and the results were just so obviously good. So whenever any of you have those choices in life, don't just take the easy option. Do the one which inside of you, you know you have to do. The one which is really right. So, the concept of no free will as an argument for no personal responsibility. It's not an argument for no personal responsibility at all. Because when it's no, uh, no free will, you still have will, you can see the will, it's not coming from you, it's conditioned into you. And if you allow bad conditions to come into you by associating with other bad people, then you find it's a lot of suffering there. So when you know where will comes from, you know, by the people you hang out with, the sort of things which you see on the computer, if you get into, say, pornography, what sort of person do you become? You do have personal responsibility to make sure that what conditions your will is good, noble and beautiful. That's why coming here, you go back as a much better person. Is the following understanding correct, please? We can make skillful choices up, upstream to create the right causes and conditions so we do not murder or kill. Exactly. And if you do have to murder or kill, we have what these days I call the AFL code. AFL is a type of football which your Australians are crazy about. But I call it acknowledge, forgive and learn. If you do something wrong, even like a murder, acknowledge what you've done. So bring it up, know it. Forgive it, no punishment. But make sure you learn from it, never to have to do that ever again. Skillful choices like associating with wives with the right people for influence and brainwash us, exactly. That's that uh, Mangala Sutta, Asewana Chabalanang Panditanang Chasewana, the Buddha's teaching. Please associate with good people, wise people, and avoid bad people. That's a great blessing. It changes you. Is this... Well, I shouldn't say this, but... I am going to, I started. There's one of the very wealthy Buddhist families in Singapore. I won't say who he is because you wouldn't know him. And his son uh, got into heroin. And his father, very wisely, took him here to Bodhinyana Monastery and dumped him here for a month, basically. So he could get to know all the monks. There were no nuns here at that time, just the monks. And he became a really good friend. 
And just associating with monks for one month, that changed his whole life. You know the penalties for you no know, heroin in Singapore. You know, he never got caught, thank goodness. But his father was wise enough to let him associate with good people. And as a result, he always, you know, considers us that basically saving his life. Which is valid. So sometimes that association with good people can be extremely powerful. Breaking off those friendships with those people who were ruining his life. Is this what is meant when the Buddha said, Kretananda said, Kalyana Mitta is not half but the whole spiritual life, pretty much so. The actions that the murderer had taken in activities with bad company has created bad karma that ripens in this lifetime with the act of murder and the further karmic consequences. Don't we understand that one? Although there is no free will with respect to conditioned act, the murderer is very much personally accountable under the criminal law of the land. Sometimes the criminal law of the land can be very unforgiving and harsh. Even when I was in Singapore some years ago, there was the case of one of these young men who was in one of the big gangs of San Francisco. I forget exactly what the gang was called. But anyway, he was found guilty of you know, murder and extortion, given the death sentence. But while he was in San Quentin, in San Quentin for many years before the death sentence would be carried out, he was counselling all these young people in the gangs of New York to stop it. You know, to get another life instead of just going around with guns and killing each other. And he was so effective. He was the leader of one of the gangs before he was caught and put in prison. And he was doing so much amazing good work. And many people started this petition. You know, it's maybe it's a bit too much to ask you to release him, but just you know, commute his death sentence to a life sentence. The amount of good stuff he's doing as a member of one of those gangs, and now he's helping other kids get out. He can really connect to those kids and relate to them. Please, you know, commute the death sentence. The decision laid with the governor of California at the time, Arnie Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. And he replied, no, that's a girly thing to do. Not to kill him. He was, he was executed. And that really disappointed me. That was a crazy thing to do. The guy was actually helping so many kids over in San Francisco, you know, from getting into these bad gangs. He'd already done so much good work, he proved that he was effective. Why destroy him like that? It didn't make any sense to me. So that's why sometimes there's another way to deal, you know, with people who make mistakes. Thinking they need punishment doesn't help anybody. And if like, people feel, well, you killed my son, you need to die as well. 
To me, that's so un-Buddhist. Like revenge, that doesn't help anybody. Who was it? There was that Gandhi movie years ago. People showed me this clip. I think when this uh, Muslim guy, no, this this Hindu, there were these riots between the Hindus and the Muslims in India at partition time. And this Hindu fellow who was a close follower of um, Gandhi, his son was killed by a Muslim. So he said, no, can I kill them back? Or something like that. And Gandhi replied, no. There were many kids who've lost their parents during these, these times. So I want you to adopt one of those, those kids and look after him, raise him as your own. You're a Hindu, I want you to adopt a Muslim kid. And he did. That was just, to me, that was really inspiring. Now his kid has been killed, you know, by the Muslims in his rights, but everyone was killing one another, they went crazy. So adopt a Muslim kid, bring him up as a Muslim. And that's the way that you can understand how to deal with these problems. That was one of the best parts of the movie. It's awesome, so. Anyway, it's getting a bit late. It's 9.19. How do you feel? You want to carry on or you want to go to bed? You're already so tired, you're not even responding. <laughs> what? The last one, okay, this is the last question. From the Sutta class today, <laughs> I knew I'd get lots of questions from this. From the Sutta class today on the components of existence being, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not a permanent essence. How do I practice to eventually understand and see the underlined, I am not, this is not a permanent essence? After a while, when you meditate, it becomes more and more obvious to you. And it's so much more freeing when you know that all these things, your body is not yours. You look after it, you care for it, just like I hope you're looking after the room in which you're staying, in the cottage you're living in. Can you say that room is yours? You kind of say, that's my room. But it doesn't mean that you own it. You're just using it for the time being. And we hope, even though it's not yours, you'll still take responsibility for it to make sure it's clean when you leave. That's not yours, not me, not mine. This, I am not. It's amazing just how people maybe have a house. You've seen people with huge mansions. It's as if their mansion reflects their ego. And some very wealthy people live in small mansions. I say small houses, huts. Your place where you live is not who you are. There's even one guy who lives in this big tower, this big tower in Manhattan, I think it is, and even names it after himself, Trump Tower. <laughs> that's not who he is, is it? Sometimes we can assume that's who he is. That, 
who am I? You know, I was really proud when I was young. I was a theoretical physicist, you know, having the same, one of the same teachers as Stephen Hawking's. Wow, that's cool. But if you ask me too much about theoretical physics these days, I wouldn't understand what you're talking about. That's not who I am, that's who I was. You forgot most of that. When I was, when I was young, I used to be so thin, so lithe, so handsome. Is that who I am now? That's not who I am. You can see some photos of me when I was really young. My hair, it had big curly hair all the way to the top and when about here it stopped and that's when my beard started. And the hair just completely circumambulated, that's a nice word, my face, which was really positive, you know, for in the cold weather of England. And my mother was always telling me to get my hair cut. You respect mothers, so I did. <laughs> she said, that's not what I meant. <laughs> getting my hair shaved. So, why am I getting into this? Oh, that's this, this I am not. It's nice not to be anybody, so you can change. Well, okay, this last story, okay. Last story. I think I told this last year. A couple of years ago, you know, I had my 72, 72nd birthday in August. I'm an old man. Yeah, the monks, I keep on saying to the monks, I'm getting old, and they refute that. You're not getting old, Ajahn Brahm. You're already old. <laughs> they're very kind. At least they're honest and straight talking. So I decided, they told me that at my age you can get an Australian Commonwealth Health Card, Seniors Card. So I went online and I tried to get one online. That's my intention. They said, no, you have to come in to the nearest Social Security office. They call it Centrelink. So why? You've got to prove who you are. There's too much identity fraud. So I made an appointment, went in there, and then when this lady sat in front of me, said, right, can you prove who you are? And you know my character. I replied, said, I've been a monk for about 45 years. I've been trying to answer that question. I haven't been able to answer it yet. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't see the joke. She got angry. She said, look, I need... ID. Show us your driving license. I don't have a driving license. I don't drive cars as a monk. Okay, show us your credit card. I don't have a credit card. Your bank account. I don't have a bank account. Okay, show us the, the home ownership. Uh, I don't have, own a home. I have a cave, but I don't own it. When I die, I can't bequeath it to anybody. Would anyone like to have that when I die? You'd have to be a monk or a nun. Yeah, nun, okay. (laughs) So, um, so, whatever you got, can you prove who you are? They ask for your marriage license or certificate. (laughs) I'm a monk, we're not married. 
and then go through all these things which actually define who you are, I didn't have any of them. And so she looked up at me, I remember this, it was a beautiful moment. She said, Ajahn Brahm, according to the Australian government then, you don't exist. <laughs> and I said, sadhu, 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 <laughs> the Buddha was right. <laughs> That's how it happened. I was lucky that I did have an Australian passport, I also got a British passport. You're only supposed to accept one passport, but they decided, oh, okay, I want to get rid of you, so let's take the both passports, and they gave me Australian health, uh, or seniors health card. It was a lovely experience. I didn't really worry whether I got one or not, it was just good fun. And I found out, according to the Australian government, this is not who I am, I don't exist. What a beautiful thing that is. <laughs> okay, is that enough for you tonight? Okay, so the mug who doesn't exist is now going to disappear to prove it. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Please excuse me if I went on a bit long. It's 9.27 now. But if that is too long, let me know. If you do get tired when we have these Q&As and I go on for a bit long, you can always just walk out and just have a nice sleep. It's all recorded, so you can always listen to it later. You can ask PJ for the highlights, <laughs> the best jokes or the worst jokes, and just uh, listen to it later. So have a beautiful night's sleep, and I wish you a calm night. See you in the morning. I would like you to have a good night's sleep tonight because tomorrow night, you know, your sleep might not be so peaceful. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> okay.